good morning. It is such a joy to be here with you. I have been looking forward to this time. And in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I want to tell you, I am truly thankful for the people of Geyer Springs. God has so richly blessed our church. Thank you to you for your faithfulness to him. You know, I'm indeed humbled by every opportunity God gives me to open his word. And you realize this morning that in the preparation, the delivery and the reception of a sermon, there is serious supernatural work happening. It is God's spirit that works through his scripture. So there is a divine moment that is upon us. And I pray that we're ready to receive it. Because think about this. If we misinterpret the word of God this morning, we don't hear from God. We miss his word. But... If we get it right, if we interpret it correctly, we hear the voice of God from heaven through his spirit into his word, into our lives. We cannot afford to not get this right today. This is the second of three messages in foundations on ecclesiology. And when we look at ecclesiology, we know that comes from the word ekklesia in the Greek, which means gathering. It means assembly. It means the called out ones. So this morning, if you're here, if you're in Christ, you have been called out to salvation. If not, I pray that you hear that call on your life today. We call that biblically the effectual call. It's when the Spirit of God calls someone to salvation. It's effectual because the work of the Spirit is effective in doing all that God has intended. And as a result, here's what we do. We repent of our sins and we place our trust and faith into Jesus Christ to save us. And when that happens, we are called out of darkness into the light. We are called out of death into life. We are called out of the world and into the church, but we're not called to stay there. We're called out of the world and into the church to actually go back into the world and reach the world. As we looked at last week, every believer is a member of what's known as the universal church. This is an invisible body of believers that's represented in all places and all times. So the faithful believer living in London, England in 1521 is a member of the same universal invisible church, just like today of the faithful believer in 2021. The universal church, however, makes itself visible by gathering together in what's known as the local church in specific times and specific places. So this morning, when I say ecclesia also means gathering and assembly as opposed to just called out ones, this means by default, the very meaning of the word church itself means that it cannot be fully done virtually. It has to be physically gathered together. Online services are an incredible blessing, and I'm so thankful Geyer Springs has such a platform to broadcast God's work here literally all over the world. But here is the deal. They are designed to meet people and reach people and also minister to you when you are providentially hindered from being here. Watching online church and calling it church is literally like sitting in your living room with the lights off watching a fireplace on the television. You can see it, you can hear it crackling, but the one thing you can't do is feel the heat and experience the warmth. It's not the same thing. And so as we're here this morning, the thrust of this message on ecclesiology is finding out what the gathered, the assembled church is to be doing until Jesus returns. And here's the thing. The good news is we don't have to guess. 
we don't have to come up with a list. Christ has already laid that out for us in his word. He's already answered that for us in what's known as the great commission. Now notice this is not the great option. This is not the great idea. This is not the great suggestion. This is the great commission. It doesn't need to be reinvented. It doesn't need to be repackaged. It simply needs to be rediscovered in the form that Christ has laid it out to us in the scriptures. And if we miss the point of this passage, we don't hear from God today. If we miss the point of this passage and we don't hear from God today, we've missed the very reason God has left us as the redeemed here on earth with breath in our lungs. We must get this right. This is our task in the word of God this morning, the mission of the church. So if you will, grab your copy of God's word and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And then hold your place there and turn to Matthew chapter 28. And we'll be referencing some additional passages along the way. As you turn to Matthew chapter 18 and then Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, we're going to be looking at the last three verses of this chapter. And consequently, the last three verses in the book of Matthew. As we walk through this text, I'm posing a question to you, to myself, to our church. Are you all in? Are you all in? You see, there's an analogy that exists to help us see what the church is supposed to be based upon what the church is actually doing. If you look at a cruise ship versus a battleship, there is a stark drastic difference between the two. A cruise ship, you gather and people show up and they serve you as a staff for all the passengers on the ship. And if something is not right, the passengers will complain. And if their complaint is not made right, what do they do? They wait for the ship to return and then they go find a new ship with a new staff better suited to meet their needs. But it's just the opposite on a battleship, isn't it? Every member, every passenger on a battleship realizes there is a war at hand and every person on that ship is unified together to fight this battle, this war together. You see, one ship is being entertained. The other is being engaged. One is an audience while the other is an army. One is a country club, the other is a cavalry. One is about comfort, the other is about a charge. One is individualistic while the other is unified. One is about preferences while the other is about purpose. One is consumeristic while the other is commissioned. How do you see the church? Is it a cruise ship? Is it a battleship? What type of passenger are you on this ship? Are you the one showing up in swift trunks, flip-flop, straw hat, and a loud Hawaiian shirt? Or are you suited up, ready, armed up with a weapon in hand, charging into battle to push back the darkness through the Lord's church? And even though many churches have become a cruise ship, Christ never intended his church to be this way. It is a battleship. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Christ, you have a role to fulfill in pushing back the darkness. And Christ has laid out a very clear mandate and mission for his church. And so I've got to ask, are you all in? Am I all in? Is Geyer Springs all in? So let's stand this morning in the honor of the reading of the word of God. And we're gonna begin in Matthew 28 and pull in additional verses as well. Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. The Lord Jesus says this. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our heads to understand the truths of your word this morning? Would you open our hearts to believe these truths that you have set forth? And would you gear and steady our hands to live out these truths in our life as we go today? We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. First truth that we're going to see here that's evident to us in this passage is number one, all authority. Look at the verse part of verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, here's what's happening here. Jesus has died. He's been buried and he has risen again to conquer sin, Satan, death, and the grave. And he's been making physical appearances to his disciples and to the people for a number of weeks. And he is on the cusp of ascending back to heaven to take his rightful seat at the right hand of the father to ultimately declare victory. And then in turn, send his Holy Spirit to fill every believer in the church. And it's at this moment, Jesus delivers this commission to the believers present that day. But by extension to us 2,000 years later, he says to them, all authority. This phrase in the Greek is pas exousia, which means all authority. But more than just all authority, it means that Jesus has the freedom to do whatever he wants. Jesus doesn't possess a little. He doesn't possess a lot, much, or most authority. No, 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 no. It says here he possesses all authority. This is unilateral, universal authority. Now look in the rest of verse 18, how far does this authority extend? Where is the extent of it? Does it have boundaries? He says it goes in heaven and on earth. In other words, Jesus is saying this authority that I have, this all authority, it's over every jurisdiction. It is everywhere. Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. And what Kuyper's saying, there's not an inch in this universe that Christ does not look over and says, that's mine. R.C. Sproul is credited with saying there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Not one microscopic molecule that we cannot see has gone outside of the orbit or plan of our sovereign God. No one else has this type of authority except Christ. He doesn't seek counsel. He doesn't seek permission. He doesn't seek approval from anyone. This type of authority that Jesus, who oversees his church, has is absolute sovereignty. He exercises it when he wants, where he wants, how he wants, why he wants, and to over whom he wants. This authority is over death, disease, angels, demons, Satan, nature, circumstances, nations, governmental authorities, pastors, churches, and you and me. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, he's in the driver's seat. There are no backseat passengers in Christ's car. He calls the shots. There are no co-pilots. And so we look here, this authority that he has, it's all encompassing and it goes everywhere. But where did he get it? Jesus says here, it's been given to me. This is past tense. It's not something that has just happened. 
Jesus did not receive this authority by popular demand. He did not campaign. He did not throw out bumper stickers and yard signs and ads. And then we all headed to the polls one election day on a Tuesday and elected Christ as king. No, he possesses this authority because God the Father has given it to the Son because it is inherently his. He has this authority because of who he inherently is. And if you're here this morning and you don't see Jesus with this type of authority, you don't have the Jesus that's laid forth for us in the word of God. You don't have the Jesus this morning that is commanding his church and is delivering this commission in his church. Also mentioned for you to reference Matthew 18. In Matthew chapter 18, it's Jesus watching over his church, protecting his church, maintaining the purity of his church. He says what goes. And in Matthew 28, he says, here's what you're supposed to do with it. As we look here, what does this statement, all authority, mean to us? Simply put, he's got the right to command everything we're going to see in verse 19 and 20, all of it. So our response is simply to do this. We submit and we surrender individually and collectively as a church to the Jesus that we see here in Scripture, the one who has all authority. Philippians 2 Verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is saying here is you are going to bow or you're going to bow. You're going to confess or you're going to confess. In other words, you're going to humble yourself with the opportunity that you have on earth right here under the authority of Jesus or one day you're going to be made humble before him at his judgment seat and then it will be too late. See, it is this authority that gives Jesus the right to command what he's going to tell the church to be doing until he comes back to get us. It is this authority that the church wants to go out under. But before we can go out under this authority, we we first must submit to this authority. So let me ask you, will you, where you're at, submit to the Lord's authority and recognize this is his church from Matthew 18 to Matthew 16 to Matthew 28, all throughout the scripture, he says, it's mine, I keep it pure. And church, this is what you're supposed to go and do. Number one is all authority. But number two, look at verse 19. We see all nations. In verse 19, Jesus uses the word therefore. It's been said when we're trying to understand scripture and we see the word therefore in the Bible, we have to ask the simple question, what is it therefore? Well, it's a transition. It's a connection statement back to what he previously said. And we just saw what he previously said. He says, I've got all authority, therefore, you go do these things. And since he has all authority, he's about to tell us what we should be doing, what we must be doing. Now, there's a lot of confusion to what Jesus says here, beginning in verse 19. So let's clarify that before we move on. The main verb or the imperative, the thrust of this verse is not go. We think, therefore, go. That's the main verb. It's not the main verb. The main verb, the imperative of this passage is actually make disciples. That is what we are to do. The participles are modifiers of make disciples. In other words, how we're to go and do it, he says, is go, baptize, and teach. This is the process of disciple making. Think wash, 
rinse and repeat, and we do it all over again. We go, baptize, teach to make disciples. And if you choose to leave one of these out, we're literally taking the chain of discipleship and breaking a link in it, and the whole thing's going to fall apart because we did not do it in the manner that Christ has instructed us to do it by all the authority that he possesses. Now look at that phrase, make disciples. A disciple, simply put, it's just a follower a learner of someone or something. And the truth is, is that everyone is a learner, a follower, a disciple of something or someone. And if you don't think the world is trying to disciple our children, let me tell you, the enemy has a foot stuck between your door so you can't slam it. He might even have a place at your table. As the world seeks to disciple our children in a certain mindset and worldview, we must stand strong and realize the church is not to make disciples of anything or anyone. The church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important here that we don't differentiate between the word disciple and Christian. They're synonyms. They're the exact same thing. A disciple is not this extra level of super Christian. There are no haves and have nots in the Christian faith. The foot is level at the cross. There are none that are anointed and then some that are. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are anointed because the Holy Spirit lives within you. You are a disciple and the disciple is simply living out the Christian life. In this culture that we've often experienced of easy believism in modern day evangelicalism has created this environment where we try to come to Christ as Savior, and then later, if we want to get serious, we'll make him Lord and actually become a disciple. Christ never differentiates between those two terms. And so as a result, churches are filled with people who are unregenerate, in other words, unsaved. And then we sit around and scratch our heads and wonder, why is the Great Commission not being fulfilled? I've heard it put like this. It's like me coming to your door and I knock away. And you say, who's there? And I say, it's Brad Franklin. You pause for a moment. And you say, Franklin, come on in. But Brad, you stay out. That's absurd. That's impossible. You can't separate me. And if you tried to, you would be rejecting me. But many people try to do the same thing to Christ. We'll say, Christ is Savior. Come on in. But Christ is Lord. You stay out. If you do that, you're rejecting Christ because we always come to Christ humbly under all that authority, under his terms. And so we have to realize there are many, many roads they're going to lead us to hell. There's only one that's going to lead us to heaven, and it's the narrow way. But above it, it's marked Christ as Savior and as Lord. See, when we come to Christ to become a disciple, it's more than just simply believing something to be true. James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do dwell. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, James is saying the demons who were once angels who rebelled against God were cast out of heaven. Now they're demons. They've seen the glory of God on display. They believe and they're fearful, but they're not coming back in. They are separated from God under his wrath for eternity. And he's saying it's more than you just, be, more than you just believing it's true. It's a faith. It's a surrender. It's a submission. It's a trust to come to Christ as Lord. See, we will never do the Great Commission as Christ has defined. We will never make disciples until we define what in the world a disciple is. 
And not only that, we'll never be a part of making disciples until we come to Christ as disciples ourselves. And so when we come to Christ as a disciple, here's what we have, an immense privilege of joining the Lord in his work in the Great Commission. In fact, I dare say, I believe part of your participation in the Great Commission is part of the proof that you actually are a disciple in the first place. And unfortunately, this has become cliche, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. We are to make disciples who go and do what? Make disciples. It's reproduction. It's multiplication. The work of the apostles in the early church all the way throughout the centuries has bore fruit, and it's sitting here today. And if Christ doesn't come back for hundreds of years, that fruit will continue to bear because we reproduce and multiply through making disciples that make disciples This was Christ's command to the church in the first century. It's Christ's command for us here at Geyer Springs today. And as I just mentioned, if Christ doesn't come back for hundreds of years, 500 years from now, it will still be the command for Christ to give to his church. So what's the first thing we have to do to make these disciples, those followers who see Christ as Lord of their life? We must go. What's the difference between us and a missionary around the world? We might wear different clothes, speak a different language, and eat different food. But the biggest difference between us and missionaries around the world is this, location. That's it. We are to make disciples wherever God has ordained you to be. Whatever area code or zip code you're living in, Christ has put you there to make disciples. So where does this intersect with the mission and the mandate of the local church? You know, there's some athletes. They love to play the game. They want on the court, they want on the field, but the one thing they don't want to do is get in the weight room and practice. Now, I've seen a lot of athletes who want to play but not practice, but I've never seen an athlete who simply wants to practice and never play. Hey, coach, let me practice hard and I'll come early and I'll stay late, but please don't put me in the game. That athlete doesn't exist. But when we translate that to the church, that's often our motif, that's often our MO, that's often who we are. This time together, it's like practice. It's like training. It's like weightlifting. It's preparation to go out into the world, which is the game where we play. But too often we're content practicing here, but we never want to go out there and play. See, we gather as believers to edify, to build each other up, to worship and lift high the name of Jesus Christ. And we scatter in the community to evangelize. We need to be a church that not only practices, but also goes out there and plays. We're not to sit and wait on the world to come to us. We have to go. Steve Lawson rightly has said, we are to put the go, the G-O, back into the gospel. This means we get up. We live with intentionality. When we wake up, we realize that making disciples doesn't happen by accident. We must go and leave the house with the goal in mind. And that goal in mind as we go about various places throughout our day is to make disciples. We are constantly seeking opportunities. Why do we seek those opportunities? Because we realize that we follow Christ who has all authority and he is constantly at work. So we're walking along, going, steadily casting seeds, watering seeds that have already been planted and trusting the Lord will bring a harvest to them. Look what he says here. Who are we to make disciples of? Jesus says you're to make disciples of all nations. 
And the nations in the Greek is ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity. The truth is, contrary to popular belief, there's not really races. There's actually kind of two races. You're either in the race of Adam apart from Christ because you're stuck in his sin and yours, or you're in the race of Christ because he has given you his righteousness credited to your account through his perfect life and death on the cross. But we do realize, even though the two races of being in Christ or outside of Christ, God has created a variety of beautiful ethnicities that are represented in all these nations. And God's hearts for the nation is clear. And if God has quite the heart for the ethnicities that are represented in the nations, should our heart not be big as well? Jesus says in Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So you know what time it is? It's time to go. It's time to go and fish. And where do we go and fish? Well, as disciples of this commission, we are to go to every place on the planet where Christ's authority exists. Where is that? We've established it's every inch. It is everywhere. We're to go fish everywhere. God has lost sheep represented in every nation across every ethnicity. We're to go across the street. We're to go across the ocean. And the Lord is telling us essentially through this commission, go get my people. Go find your brothers and sisters and bring them to the church. We don't know who's going to be safe. So what do we do? We aim for everyone. We fish for everyone. And right now, the sobering reality is there are a couple of billion people on this planet who've never heard a gospel presentation. They don't know who Jesus Christ is. There's no Christian in their village in which they could go and ask. There's no local church that's been established. They may not have a copy of God's word or in all honesty, God's word may not have even been translated in their language yet. And when I say that, if you're thinking about what's for lunch, you're thinking about who's playing this afternoon, you're hindering the work of the Great Commission, not only in your own heart, but in the life of this church. We gotta be like John Knox from Scotland who said, God, give me Scotland or I die. We have to be like George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists in history who said, the world is my parish. Our heart must be for the nations. Do we have the heart of God for the nations? This is the gospel going to all types of people at all times and all places, not just those like us. And so with all the ethnicities represented in the nation, there is no room in the Christian's life for any type of prejudice based on someone's ethnicity or socioeconomic status. The gospel is for all. Christ pulled us up. He will pull anyone up. So when the doors are open on Sunday in this place, we welcome all people as Christ has welcomed us. That's part of this mission. And once God does his work through us in the lives of others, as we make disciples to go to all nations, what are we to do next? He says, baptize. Well, next week under this ecclesiological part of our foundation series, the church is actually going to be looking at the ordinances of a baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so due to this, I'm not going to delve far into the topic of baptism that we see listed in verse 19. I do, however, need to highlight a couple of truths. First, if you're here, and you're trusting that your baptism saved you, I gotta tell you as a brother, it did not. Christ is the one who saves us, not your self-effort, not my self-effort. This does not, however, diminish in any way the importance and the value of baptism because baptism doesn't save us, but it is, however, a symbol of Christ's saving work in us. 
It represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We stand in the water dead to ourselves. Christ died upon the cross. We die to our old self. Christ went into the grave. He came up resurrected. We come up being represented as a brand new creation in Christ. We die to our old self. We're brand new in Christ. And baptism publicly identifies us not only with Jesus, but his church and the fellowship of his local church. And so the very symbol of baptism, the very meaning of it defines how we're to be baptized by immersion. If you're here this morning and you've never been baptized by immersion after salvation as a picture of what Christ has done in your life, you're never gonna fulfill this commission in the way that Christ has intended you to do so because you're out of step and out of obedience to him. Even the Greek word for baptism is baptizo, which means to dip or to immerse. The symbol and the word itself points us to the way in which we're to baptize by immersion. I'd finally just say, this is a command in scripture. It's to be observed by all believers. And in the New Testament, you don't see a category of a believer walking around on the pages of the book of Acts who is saved and has never been baptized. It's just assumed that if you're in Christ, you have followed him in what we call believer's baptism. So if you're here this morning and you've not been baptized, it does not mean that you're not saved. Christ saves, not baptism. But if you're vehemently rejecting following the Lord and believers' baptism and you're fighting him and you don't think you need it and you don't want it, it might be time to do a heart checkup because you may not have been saved in the first place. A disciple will want to follow Christ. Check out the name that's associated with baptism. Do you see that? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know this to be the Trinity, and notice it states name, not in the names of. See, we have one Godhead, and each member of it is at work in this disciple-making process. Each member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are at work in making and birthing disciples through our efforts. Think about this. God the Father, he authored salvation. He's the one that wrote it. Every religion in the world has tried to come up with some way of salvation on their own, and each one has ended at a dead-end road of self-righteousness and works, trying to appease God or some false God. Our salvation is so wonderful, it only could have originated in the mind of God. See, God authored it, but what did Christ do? Christ accomplished our salvation. He left heaven. He came to earth. He was born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, died upon the cross, took on God's wrath and punishment for our sins. God treated Jesus as if he lived your life. Your worst sin, Christ was punished for it. He was buried and he rose again. See, God authored it. It was Christ who accomplished it. And it's the Holy Spirit who applies this. You feel your sin and the weight of it. We call that conviction. And not only do you have conviction of your sin, you realize that you deserve it. You realize you deserve the wrath of God on your life. But then you have the clarity of seeing who Jesus is and how much he loved you and what he did for you. And then what's your response? God authors it. Christ accomplishes it. The Spirit applies it. You accept it. You come to Christ and at the end of yourself, you find him and you call upon his name to save you as Romans 10, 13 says, everyone, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and he saves you. And then from this passage, what's our first step of obedience? We identify ourselves with the local church through baptism. 
Has this happened to you? Have you experienced salvation in Christ, that Trinitarian work of God, the Son, the Spirit, working to redeem you, to get your soul into their care? And if you have, have you taken the next step of baptism? It's by Jesus' authority that we're called to make disciples. And we do this when we go, when we baptize, and then next we see Jesus saying, you're to teach. And so we've highlighted all authority in all nations, but thirdly, let's look at the first part of verse 20, all commands. What are we to teach? Jesus answers that. He says, all that I have commanded you. Now, where would we go to find all the commands that Christ has given us? It's found totally, completely in the word of God. And when we say all, here's what this means. No truths of scripture are to be withheld. We don't cherry pick. We teach the full counsel of God's word to make disciples. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of the word of God. J.C. Ryle said it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. The heart of disciple making is when we go and somebody comes to Christ, they follow in baptism is to immerse one another into the eternal truths of God's word. You see, Christianity, contrary to a lot of the emotionalism that exists, it is a thinking faith. Some of the most brilliant people who have ever lived were believers in Christ. But we also have to realize that we don't simply teach just for knowledge. Our mind is an on-ramp to get to our soul. And we teach ultimately to do what Jesus tells us to do here with all these commands. Notice what he says, observe. We're to teach for obedience. We don't just teach for beliefs. We also teach for behavior. We don't just teach for confession. We also teach for character. We don't just teach for information, but for transformation. We don't just teach for doctrine. We teach for duty and ultimately delight. And this is all possible because of the nature of the word of God in which we are sharing to make disciples. See, the Bible itself, it came from God. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, since this word is inspired by effect, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative. And as we see in verse 17, it's sufficient. This is all we need for the task of discipleship, whether it be here in 2021 or the believer in 1100 sitting with no technology, no buildings around a tree with disciples in the word of God. They were being made in that multiplication reproduction to us today. Listen to this, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. There's not a human tool that we can manufacture or conjure up on our own that can do this type of work. There is nothing better than this. This is all we need for the work of discipleship. As Christ prayed for all the believers before he went to the cross, in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them, which is the heart of discipleship, that sanctification process. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. This is the source of our sanctification. This is the disciple's manual. This is the voice of God for the disciple. Now, if you know me, there is a lot more I want to say about this, but let's move forward. What's Jesus' response to his church? When we go, 
and baptize and teach to make disciples. Where we're all authority to all nations with all these commands. Fourth and finally, look at the second part of verse 20. All days. My version of the Bible says, behold, some of yours that you're reading may say low. Maybe you memorize this verse in a version that used the word low. Essentially, this is just a strong word that's designated to get our attention to what is about to be said. And Jesus picked this word in verse 20 because we need to pay very close attention to what he's about to say to us. So what is it that Jesus is saying to behold? He's essentially saying, wake up, heads up, listen, pay attention, don't forget I am with you. He doesn't say I will be with you or I was with you. He says in the very present tense, I am with you. Jesus is with his people. It is Jesus who is with his people as we work as a church to fulfill this commission. It reminds me of a name that we'll talk about a lot concerning Christ next month with Christmas coming. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christ is present with his people. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus not only sends us into the battle, he's beside us in the battle. And no matter where we follow him, in the mountains, he is there. In the valleys, he is there. No matter when we follow him, in the sunshine, he is there. And in the storms, he is there. When we fearfully share the gospel with a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a classmate, he's with us. When we are nervous about stepping out in the obedience of baptism to his command here, he's with us. When we share the word of God around the dinner table with our family or at bedside with our children, he is with us. When we anxiously step out in a role of service in Christ's church, he is there. Now look at this phrase, how long will Jesus be present with his church as we fulfill this commission? He says all days, always to the end of the age, every single time, all of your life, all the days of this church and until time expires, Jesus will be there. Jesus was with his church in persecution and revival, which often happens at the same time. He's with his church, whether many or few are attending. He's with his church, whether the offering plate is boiling over or whether it's bare. He's with his church when the government supports and opposes our gatherings. He's with his church when shepherds are faithful or when they fall. He's with our brothers and sisters living in the first century under the persecution of Nero. He was with his church in the 16th century under the Protestant Reformation. He was with his church in the great awakenings in the 18th century. He's been with his church in 2020 and 2021 dealing with COVID-19 and all the effects of the unrest in our streets. He's with our church right now gathering in closed countries underground. He's with the church meeting in a sand dune in the desert. He's with the church meeting under a tree in the bush. He's with the church meeting on the banks of the rivers and the rainforest. And he is with his church at 12400 Interstate 30, Little Rock, Arkansas. All seconds, all minutes, hours, days, months, years, decades, centuries, and millenniums. As long as we are doing the commission of Christ's work on earth, he is with us. Do you know what this means? The commission and the success of this commission does not rest on us. I can't do it. You can't do it. It's mission impossible for us. He will, however, do it through us. So it's mission possible with him. And to him be the glory at the end of the ages, it will be mission accomplished by him through us. 
And when we lose sight of who he is with all his authority and his ever-present presence with us in this work, it becomes overwhelming. And what we tend to do is start to apply the tools of the world to this task. And we've got to recognize we cannot do this without him, without his word. There's nothing that we can manufacture that will rip open the coffin of a spiritually dead man and bring him to life. It is the preaching of the word of God and lifting up Christ that does it. Paul Washer said, he's not just all that we need. He's all that we have. This is why it's vital the Lord's presence is with us when he do his, do his work. And as we do this commission, he's in front of us. He's behind us. He's beside us. He's above us. He's under us. He's preparing our hearts and the hearts of all those we're going to encounter to make disciples. As we conclude, what do we do with this? That's a lot of information in a short amount of time of what the church is called to do until Christ comes. And if you're a disciple this morning, the spirit of God does dwell in you. And he's going to give you some practical application of where you need to put this into practice. But here's some implications for you that might help spur on some application that God's spirit is working in your heart. First, you've heard me reference a variety of different passages from Matthew 28 to Matthew 18 to Matthew 16. And in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think one of the most important things in fulfilling this mission is to remember whose church this is. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's Jesus's church. And in Matthew 18, he tells us to tell how to take care of that church. And in Matthew 28, he tells us how to fulfill the mission of that church. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's Jesus's. He's in charge. He's building his church. There is no plan B. This is the plan. So sometimes we just have to stop and look at ourselves in the mirror and go, we need less programs and we need more prayer. We need less events and we need more evangelism. We need less buildings and we need more Bible. We need less relevancy. We need more relationships. We need less strategies. We need more spirit. We need less marketing. We need more men. We focus too much on temporal tools. The two things that are going to last forever in Christ's church are the souls of men and women and the word of God. And that's where discipleship happens, are those two things. It's where it advances people and the Bible. So stop wasting our time with evangelical fads that are gonna come and go, that are gonna burn up on the day of judgment before Christ. Why not invest in the things that last? Remember, this is his church. Secondly, I would just tell you to start somewhere. As you hear this, I hope your heart is stirred for the lost, for making disciples, for building up the saved. We just need to start somewhere. Ask yourself, what am I doing to further this commission? William Carey said, I will go to the mine, but I need someone to hold the rope. We need people that's going to go down in the mine, but we also need people that are going to hold the rope. There is something to do in Christ's commission for everyone. And here's one thing that you can be sure about as you think, what's God's will for my life? It's this. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And whatever zip code, area code God places you in, you are to be fulfilling the Great Commission. So take a small step. Whatever that is, we want to help you with that. Contact someone on our pastoral ministry team. We would love to help you take that first step. Thirdly, I would say just commit to the local church. You can't do the Great Commission outside the authority of Christ's church. And as we realize this, I love the local church. <laughs> I, I do. I'm probably obnoxious about 
the word of God and the local church because I love those two things more than anything else in life. I love the Lord's church and I love his word. And so I don't tend to shy away from those things. And so when I show up here, here's the order. Number one, I'm a disciple in Christ. Number two, I'm a member of Geyer Springs. And then number three, I'm one of the pastors of this church. I love the local church. I heard Tom Askell say much this past year, find a good local church and build your life around it. If you will build your life around a good local church, and if you're looking for one, newsflash, you're in one right now, Geyer Springs. Build your life around this church and you will find the greatest involvement and opportunities in which to fulfill the Great Commission. And finally, is there a part of this commission you've not experienced? Have you come to Christ? Are you truly a learner, a follower, a disciple of him? If not, I pray the spirit of God will draw you to him today. You'll hear that call in your life and you'll answer it. And you'll come and if you turn from your sin and you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, he will save you. You will have to run and hide no more. Maybe you're here and you've done that. And you're stirred because you know you need to take the next step of obedience through what we call believer's baptism because you're not going to be able to fulfill the demands of being a disciple and making other disciples until you get that right. And others of you, you're just stirred because you know you need to do something. Take that small step. I want you to bow with me. I'm going to pray over you. And in a moment as we close out in a time of worshiping the Lord through song, I'll be around Pastor Jason, Pastor Adam here in the front. If there's some way that we can pray for you, some way that we can encourage you, some way that we can talk through with you the Great Commission, where you're at, please come grab us. We want to open up God's word with you and show you the truths that he has so blessed our church with. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this commission. And Father, I pray it brings clarity because we don't have to wonder what in the world are we supposed to do? We know because you've given it to us. And Father, you give it to us by all the authority that you possess. And so today, Lord Jesus, let us humble ourselves under that authority. This is your church. You purify it, you run it, you take care of it how you have declared. We don't get to change that. We get to fall in line as a faithful soldier under our commander. Father, I pray that you would help us not only to be under all your authority, but Father, I ask God that you would help us also to have a heart for all nations, that we realize we're to make disciples of every one. And God, even though we may not be able to go into the mine of every mission field, we can hold the ropes of those who do. And so God, I ask that you would please help us to have a heart for the nations, to be broken for those who are apart from you. Help us to go. Help us to make disciples. And Father, I also pray, Lord, if there's one here who's not followed you in believer's baptism, you would draw their heart. I pray if there's one who's not come to you in faith in Jesus Christ, you would draw their heart. And Father, I pray that you would help us to love all your commands. This is your word. This is how you've communicated to us. Father, there's, there's nothing better. Help us to trust and sit under the authority of your word to make disciples. This is your literal voice in our lives. Let us open it and respond to it accordingly. And then thank you, Jesus, all days. I know there's people here, they're struggling right now with various things, whether it's a role of service or ministry they have in the church or circumstances that's happened with family or work or school or other things that we can't even identify. But you know, 
And Christ, you promise your presence with those who are fulfilling your commission. Thank you that you are with us always, all days, even to the end of the age. And so, Christ, we pray you'll do this, do with this what you will for your glory, your namesake, and the good of your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.